This is the Thank You 72 podcast, brought to you by Wisconsin Alumni Association. This podcast salutes outstanding badgers from every one of Wisconsin's 72 counties. It's also our way of saying thank you to the people of this state for sending their best and brightest to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Here's your host, Todd Pritchard. Seeking truth, exposing injustice, sparking change. In this podcast, the story of two UW-Madison alumni who used very different talents and skills to confront longstanding issues involving race and inequality. We begin with an Iron County native who you've probably never heard of before, yet he reshaped the pursuit of justice during many of America's most turbulent years. Joseph Aloysius Sullivan was born in 1917 in Montreal and raised in Hurley. He graduated from the University of Wisconsin in 1938, and he took a job with the Federal Bureau of Investigation when he learned that it paid more than what he was earning after law school. Eventually named a major case investigator, Sullivan played key roles in the agency's inquiries following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the Sterling Hall bombings at the University of Wisconsin, and the Kent State shootings. Sullivan's relentless pursuit of the truth served him well during the months when he investigated and ultimately solved the Mississippi burning case, the FBI's probe into the murders of three civil rights workers in 1964. His painstaking work unlocked the secrets of a local Ku Klux Klan chapter. A confidential informant, never identified by Sullivan, passed along information from a citizen about where the bodies of three civil rights workers were buried. One of those victims was UW alumnus Andrew Goldman. Although Sullivan never sought public attention, it surrounded his life nevertheless. Actor Gene Hackman played him in the 1988 Academy Award-nominated movie Mississippi Burning. He was the role model for the lead in the TV series The FBI. Novelist Tom Clancy called him the greatest lawman America ever produced. Sullivan died of cancer in Manhattan in 2002. A Wall Street Journal obituary noted that the homeless who visited the soup kitchen where Sullivan volunteered were astonished to learn that the gentleman who mopped up their floors had been a top G-man. Thank you, Iron County, for the relentless Joseph Sullivan, who solved some of the nation's most famous crimes during its darkest hours. You're listening to the Thank You 72 podcast. The Wisconsin Alumni Association is honoring amazing badgers. These trailblazers are a positive force of change in Wisconsin and around the nation. For more amazing UW-Madison alumni stories, visit thankyou72.org. That's thankyou72.org. Now, the story of another UW grad whose work today shines a bright light on longstanding issues of race and equality in our time. Once again, here's Todd Pritchard from the Wisconsin Alumni Association. It started with a simple letter. That letter contained a stunning revelation and started a decade-long deep dive into modern-day segregation, racism, and injustice. It is a story of heartbreaking loss, but it's also a story of hope. Southern Rights is told through the photographs and documentary produced and directed by our guest, 1997 grad, an award-winning visual storyteller and filmmaker, Jillian Laub. Jillian, welcome to the podcast. Jillian, we're going to talk about Southern rights, and rights in this case is spelled R-I-T-E-S. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but first, tell us your story. Where did you grow up, and how did you come to the University of Wisconsin-Madison? So I grew up in Westchester, uh, which is about 60 miles north of Manhattan, 
And um, I always heard about the University of Wisconsin from a cousin of mine. He was my father's first cousin, who my father greatly admired. I would hear stories about Madison, Wisconsin and his days there. He he graduated school when he high school when he was 16. Um, and he was quite a character on the campus here. And when I came to visit, it was not during winter, <laughs> the winter months. Um, it was quite a tease because it was on a gorgeous, gorgeous autumn weekend. And um, I just fell in love with the campus. And I wanted to um, experience something different than the East Coast. So you graduated from the University of Wisconsin, you got a degree in comparative literature, and then you went on to study photography at the International Center for Photography in New York. What was that like? What was that experience about? So um, when I was here, I, I've, I've always been in love with storytelling. And um, my degree, I realized that I'm not a good writer. And I've always been really in love with with photography. And I remember my high school graduation, I got a video camera. Um, if you saw what it looked like, you'd laugh. And I used to go around campus interviewing people. And so I always knew that I really wanted to, um, you know, my life to be in visual arts after um, I graduated Madison. But I think that Madison gave me the foundation um, for storytelling and narrative. Um, and and then I went on to study photography afterwards. And that's when I knew I was dedicating my life to um, storytelling through photography and filmmaking. So in 2002, you were working as a freelance photographer at... Uh, Spin Magazine, correct? In 2002, I started working. I was a freelancer for many different magazines. Spin Magazine was one of the magazines that I worked for. So that magazine received a letter from a high school student in Mount Vernon, Georgia, which is a small community about 150 miles southeast of Atlanta. What was that letter all about? So the letter was really a cry for help. Um, Anna Rich, uh, she had her outlet, this was pre-internet, so her outlet to the outside world of her small town were magazines. And one of her favorite magazines was Spin Magazine. And she was outraged because certain stories that they were telling seemed insignificant compared to what she was experiencing experiencing in her hometown, which was the fact that there were segregated homecomings and proms. She wasn't allowed to take her boyfriend to her prom because he was black and she was white. So the letter was sent to Spin Magazine as a cry for help for somebody to please come tell her story um, and share what's going on in her town. And actually, the person who received the letter is also a uh, Madison alumna. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow. Dana Adam Shapiro. He was an editor at Spin Magazine, and he's, he's who received her letter. So what was the reaction when you guys saw this letter? He called me up and said, we have to go down to Georgia and, and tell this story. Um, so springtime, the prom had since passed and the next segregated event to cover was fall homecoming events. And that's when we went down and, um, and covered the segregated homecomings. This is not 1950 or 1960 we're talking about. We're talking 2002. Correct. That must have been just 
stunning. It was pretty surreal, and I felt pretty naive because I just landed in this town, and what was happening there felt so normal to the people there. And for me, I felt as if it was so foreign. You know, this is something that I'd studied in history books. This is not something that's actually still going on in our country. And why does it feel so normal? There was a, a, um, a ballot that kids um, voted for the white prom queen and the black prom queen. And that was just normal and okay. And when the floats were passing for the homecoming parade, there was the white um, nominee waving next to the black nominee. And that was okay. And they were smiling. Um, and it felt, it was jarring. And, and it haunted me. There was completely separate courts. I think the picture that I saw that was in your documentary was there was even little boys and girls who like was the like the court were yes black, black and white. It was there was it wasn't a separate court. The court was together, but they had a white and black representative for each class. Um, and ultimately a white and black queen won. Now, the crowns were handed out um, from first graders, and the first graders were also racially segregated. So they're teaching first graders about race at such a young age. So there's a black first grader who's handing the crown to the black queen, and the white first grader who's handing the crown to the white queen. Tell us about the people you talked to, the the photographs you took of 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 the, at that moment. What what was that like? You know, when I first um, arrived, I was I spent most of the time with Julie and Anna, the sisters, who were really the town activists, and um, they were just outraged and so happy that somebody cared enough to come down to their town and tell this story. I was really there on my first trip to document what I was seeing, and I didn't have the time to spend talking to people. And that's exactly why I knew I had to continue coming down and spending time and really um, getting to know the community because it was just two days of really just watching and observing. Um, And I just knew that there was so much more that I wanted to know and understand. And that's what kept me coming back down. How often did you go back then? Oh my goodness, I can't even count the amount of trips that I've made and and I actually should go back and really figure out the duration of what it would all add up to. But um but it my my trips back and forth lasted um you know, it was over a decade. So the 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 photographs you took throughout this time period, where did they go? What happened to them? After 2002, when I had um, first learned about Montgomery County, I had embarked on a project in the Middle East that kept me there for the next five years. And I dreamed about coming back to Montgomery County and really spending time because I knew that, you know, I didn't have to go far to really find an important story in my own backyard that needed to be told. So in 2008, uh, I called the school and asked when the proms were. And the receptionist said, which prom? The black folks prom or the white folks prom? 
And um, I said, both, either, all of them. She said, the white folks prom is this weekend and the black folks prom is in two weeks. So I called my editor at the New York Times Magazine, where I contribute to, and um, I said, I have to go down and photograph. They're still having segregated proms. This is, this is, the story has to be told. And um, I went down and to make a long story short, I was basically chased out of town because mothers had recognized me from 2002 and told me to go back to where I came from. They slashed my tires and threatened me basically. So, um, I felt completely defeated. Uh, but in that short time that I was there, I met two girls who appear in the photographs and in the film. One girl, her name is Kiki, and she was so excited. I saw this beautiful, adorable girl jumping up and down, super excited in a parking lot. And I asked her why she was so excited. And she said, she's going to be the first black girl to go to the white folks prom because her really close friend had invited her last minute because his girlfriend broke up with him. And I said, oh my God, I have to, I have to follow you getting ready. This is historic. So, um, Later that evening, when I was in my hotel room, um, my T-Mobile cell phone did not work there, so she called my motel. Uh, and on the other end was Kiki hysterical crying, and she was disinvited to the black to the white prom because Dylan's mother did not feel comfortable with him taking Kiki. So she was hysterical crying, and she said, "Please come back to my prom in two weeks." And I said, "Absolutely, I will be there." So although I was chased out of the white prom, I did return two weeks later for the black prom and I was welcomed with open arms. So it was then that I realized how I had to keep going and how important it was to really tell this story. So I, I returned a few times without my camera just to talk to people so I could explain what I'm doing and I I could let them get to know me so I wasn't just that girl who photographed uh, the segregated homecomings for spin. So um, that's when I photographed the and started interviewing families and students uh, in 2009 from the white prom and the black prom. And that appeared in the New York Times Magazine as a photo essay and a multimedia piece, which then caused national outrage and was the catalyst to for the proms to integrate the next year. So that community must have been just turned upside down at that point. Yeah, there was, um, you know, the phone calls I got and um, the messages I got and, and hearing what was going on sounded like it was in a state of disarray. <laughs> what kind of reaction were you getting? You know, it was mixed because um, the the students from um, that were gra- the black students that, who were graduating in two thousand and nine. First, they were very scared to talk to me. Um, they had me promise that I wouldn't. The photographs and interviews would not be published until after they graduated. They were scared if they spoke to me that they wouldn't graduate. So keeping quiet was something that they were used to. Um, and it was a big deal for them. They felt really, really, really proud that they were part of this change. 
And that was exciting. And I, I was so happy for them. And they would call me, you know, with all these different updates. And they felt so, so, so proud. Um, and the New York Times was really amazing because, of course, they said that they wouldn't publish it until after they graduated. Um, on the other hand, the white community was not very happy with me. Um, and the calls that I got were pretty upsetting. And there just came a time that my husband was like, you just have to stop answering the phone in the middle of the night. It's just, it's not healthy. Um, and it felt bad. It felt really bad. And I, I felt, I felt bad because I know what it's like. They, they did open up to me and I don't think that they were prepared for how the public was going to respond to them and their beliefs. So I, I felt guilty in the sense that um, they were getting um, a lot of backlash for sharing their story with me. But on the other hand, I also, in the larger picture, was said, you know, it's pain. You know, it's painful for change to happen, and this is part of that. So I kind of kept my eye in the big picture. And, um, and in the end change did happen. So it was, it was okay. Were you surprised that they were surprised? <sighs> yes, I was surprised because those were their words. And I was surprised that they, um, their shock and awe did surprise me. Um, <sighs> Yeah, it did. And what was their justification for having a segregated? Tradition was a word that just kept on being repeated and repeated. And, you know, it's not broken. We don't need to fix it. A traveling exhibit of photographs from Southern Rights is on display at the Chasen Museum of Art at the University of Wisconsin-Madison until May 12, 2019. You can also view Jillian's photography by visiting southernrightsproject.com. That's southernrightsproject.com. Now, back to our interview with visual storyteller, documentary director, and producer Jillian Lobb. Your host, Todd Pritchard, from the Wisconsin Alumni Association. Jillian, the attention your photographs brought to Mount Vernon forced that community to integrate their prom in 2010. So you went back after those photographs were published to this small town in Georgia. What were you going back to do? So I always knew that the proms were a symptom of something larger, a larger story about race. And um, I wanted to explore that. There was another... Um, Kiki, who was one of the students that I talked about, um, I got to know her really well. And her father was running to be the first African-American sheriff. And um, years before, when he was going to run, he got death threats. So now he was running and he had the, a huge support system and the community seemed to be very confident that he was going to win. So I really wanted to go back and document how things were changing and progressing in Montgomery County. And I also knew that the photographs alone, you know, there were so I loved the voices and I loved moving pictures. So I, I wanted to incorporate film and video 
in, in this project. So um, that's when I started um, to film as well in 2010 when the proms were integrated. This is your first documentary? Yes. That must have been daunting. Yes, it, it was. I did not know what I was doing in the beginning. It was a, it was a very steep learning curve. <laughs> well, it's magnificent. So you, you learned fast. <laughs> so as you went back to the community, you started filming. So what was that like? Obviously, totally different medium. Uh, one part, the the documentary is is amazing. the The beginning of it, where uh, you are confronted, I believe it's by a sheriff's deputy who's yes. trying to grab the camera out of your hand, was like so jarring. Hey. Oh, okay. What newspaper are you with? What? What newspaper are you with? The fear that I heard in your voice as yeah. he was trying to, you know, what, I'm sure you faced a lot of that as you tried to put this on film. How did you deal with that? Oh, I left town. I mean, I was terrified. I just drove straight to the airport. And what gave you the guts to come back? <sighs> Good question. <laughs> um you know, I have to say, if I had children then, like I do now, I don't know if I would come back. Um, I was relentless, and I also kind of felt, if they're going to chase me away, that means they have something even more to hide. So this is even more important. Um, and I just, I felt, I became very close with Kiki's father, who was the chief of police. And I felt like they were my second family there and, and he had my back and, and he would protect me. So, um, after a lot of deliberation back and forth, I felt like, okay, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go back. So as you are filming this documentary, suddenly there's, a tragic turn. One of the former students that you photographed, who was then 22 years old, had graduated, African-American man by the name of Justin Patterson, is shot and killed by a white man, 62-year-old Norman Naismith. What do you do, Mr. Norman? <laughs> I hate to say it, but I shot him. You think you shot him? Yes. You don't know who it was, Mr. Norman? It was just a, a black boy. It was a black boy? Yeah. Is he still there? Uh, he hit the woods. He hit the woods? Yeah. Suddenly your plans have completely changed, mm -hmm. and this town is gripped by the shooting. Mm -hmm. Tell me yes. about that. So I got a text from Kiki. Justin was Kiki's um, high school boyfriend. He was her first love. And I got a text from her that he was shot and killed. She said murdered. So that he was murdered and by an older white guy. And, you know, everyone jumped to conclusions. Of course, this is, you know, an older white, you know, she sent me pictures of him. We were all looking on his Facebook. It was this older man on his Harley. You know, we just assumed this older white redneck man um killed Justin. And um, I got to know the Patterson family throughout my time in um, Montgomery County, and it was just devastating. It was devastating because 
um, they did not feel like they were going to get justice. And um, everything took a turn because now what they were going through and what was going to happen was most important and, and paramount to anything that I was doing before. And it seemed as if all of the um, racial tensions and, and racial undertones that I was feeling all played out in, in what happened next. Norman Naismith goes to jail for one year, 365 days. And I thought one of the most gripping moments was when Justin's mom was in court during the plea bargain mm -hmm. hearing that the county had come up with a plea bargain for this one year. She made an impassioned plea to the judge to, for justice. This man will never know what he has done to my family. No one would ever get me to understand why it was necessary to kill my son. A person is dead, and it may not mean anything to some of you, but it was my son, and it means everything to me. When I was watching the documentary, it was the pain was almost too much to bear. I mean... I cannot imagine mm -hmm. what that family was going through. Yeah, it was it was pretty heartbreaking. Um, I actually just talked to her today because Justin would have been 30 years old today. Oh, my gosh. It was his birthday. And how is she doing? You know, she is doing better. She had to move away. Um, it was just too painful for her to stay in the community. So she moved to Tennessee, and she's rebuilding her life. You know, I have to say that with all of the, you know, the trauma that went on, I do feel like the children and, and the young, the youth is what kept me hopeful and what continues to keep me hopeful. And, um, and that is what kept me going. And, um, and it's exciting to see, uh, you know, what they're doing with their lives and, and they they give me hope. Change takes uh, a long time, and it does feel like baby steps. But um, but I do think things are changing. I mean, just to go back to you know in two thousand and two to have a biracial couple, they would never even walk down the street together. Now you see mixed children all over in the community. So just in in that superficial example um, is where you see change but of course you know it's slow to come so you directed this film you produced this film and in part you had help from grammy award-winning musician john legend how did that come about oh well um really great timing and great luck because <laughs> at the time um you know i realized making a film is quite expensive much more so than photography, and we needed uh, finishing funds. So we uh, had a private fundraiser, and somebody who works with John was at the fundraiser and saw parts of the film and said, John Legend just started this uh, production company, and he cares a lot about social justice. I think that he would really, uh, this film would really resonate with him, and we were very, very lucky that it did. 
Jillian, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You know, you are truly a living example of the Wisconsin idea. You came here, you learned, you came to University of Wisconsin, Madison, you went out in the world and you changed the world. Oh, wow. That I I don't know what to say. I'm so embarrassed. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I I hope I help in some way. Well, you made a huge difference in that community, and I think you changed a lot of people's lens that they're looking through uh, on race and injustice. And your piece, your documentary, and your photography is is just amazing. I'm really thrilled to to have this show open here. It means a lot to me, and I think that the goal of this work is really to share the stories so students can can see also what one voice, using your voice, and what one voice can do to change. If it weren't for that brave high school girl, none of this would have happened. So I think it's really important for students to be empowered by that and to see that, and also to see what's going on in our country. The HBO documentary Southern Rights will have a Madison debut screening on April 16th, 2019 at 6 p.m. in Union South on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus, followed by a Q&A with Jillian Lobb, along with producer and UW grad Lisa Heller. You can also see the film by visiting southernrightsproject.com. Thanks for listening to the Thank You 72 podcast. The Wisconsin Alumni Association brings you stories of amazing Badgers. For more podcasts, visit thankyou72.org. That's thankyou72.org.